You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. This is the third installment of our Inhospitable Water series. And we've learned a lot so far about where we get our water from, the underground ocean called the aquifer that is shrinking fast because we're taking too much from it, mighty freshwater rivers like the Colorado that's drying up thanks to a warming climate. And we've learned about new technologies to combat these problems, remote-controlled irrigation systems, laser levelers for crop fields, billion-dollar desalination plants to suck water from the ocean. But in this episode, we focus on old technology, ancient technology, And to recap the history we've learned so far, basically, the story has been... In the mid-20th century, Arizonans paid no heed to water. It seemed plentiful for any and all purposes. This is Robert Glennon, author, University of Arizona professor, and our resident water expert you heard in our previous two episodes. And farmers just sunk a well whenever and wherever they wanted. Uh, new residents proclaimed how much they loved the desert, and then they tried desperately to make it look like uh, Illinois. They planted uh, lawns and did things like that. So by the mid-1970s, Arizona was in trouble. But Arizona history goes back much further than the last century. Before farmers and golfers and Americans far and wide flocked to the desert and built dams and wells to drink and feed thirsty crops— Native American cultures bloomed and thrived here, perfecting the art of surviving in the desert for millennia. Golly, you know, the Native peoples had extraordinary practices that we who came after them seemed to ignore. Um, And then all of a sudden we realized that they were really smart and had some pretty terrific ideas on what to do with water. And these Native peoples are not just a part of history. They are very much alive today. And many of them are using the time-tested methods their ancestors developed over the course of thousands of years. Finding out the the real history, it makes a big difference. Current irrigation systems that we deal with in the valley are a blip in time compared to the Hocom. You know, we have over sometimes 10,000 years of replication. You know, we just do things a little differently. This was all done by your hands and the tools you made and and what you could see, you know. We've been farmers since time immemorial. Us living out here in the desert, this was one of our main parts of survival. That last voice you heard is Juke. J-U colon K-I. That's actually uh, in in our language, autumn. Mm -hmm. It means rain. Oh, cool. Yeah. I met Juke while he was working on a small neighborhood garden in Ajo, Arizona, about an hour and 15 minutes from where he grew up in the Thana Otham Indian Reservation in southern Arizona. I am from the village of Bigfields on the reservation. Juke said his village got its name from its big fields, but those fields are no longer producing food for the community like they used to. As we've learned in previous episodes, the small farms that used to be dotted all across America have been replaced by massive industrial ones. Juke said the people in big fields today have to shop at an expensive grocery store nearby or drive hours to a cheaper one. So he's trying to bring the fields back to big fields and get food growing there again. So like 
there's enough for the community you know we're growing so much and like it'd be so awesome to like every household gets a couple of pounds of beans and every mm-hmm. household gets a squash and a bag of corn or something like that and to know that if and when it happens that you know everybody got to take part in it at this point in our water series we've established that water issues and agriculture are impossible to separate in the western united states agriculture uses 80 percent of our water so if agriculture can cut back and grow our food with less water that would make a huge difference and that brings us back to juke you may be wondering where he's going to get all the water it takes to make a big field green again a government-funded canal diverting river water a bunch of wells that cost tens of thousands of dollars to dig? The answer is neither. Juke is in training in Ajo. He's learning how the Afam and other indigenous peoples before him grew healthy, traditional desert food without any of the modern, expensive, and disruptive water technologies that have contributed to Arizona's, the West, and many other parts of the world's current water crisis. He's learning how to use the water that falls from the sky. Yeah, I've seen it done on a big scale there on the reservation, and, and it's, it's amazing to know that all of that's done by rainwater. And once he goes back to big fields and starts his garden, he hopes his idea will multiply across the country. He wants to... Be that example to the people around us, too, that, you know, that other communities can do that, that you guys can get together. And if you need help, then come over, or I know resources that can help get it established. On this episode an alternative to the big industrial, water-intensive agriculture that's grown to dominate the world in recent years. An alternative from people like Juke, who are working to feed their neighbors and show the world what is possible with a little water and a lot of knowledge passed down through generations. From here, Arizona, this is Inhospitable. I'm Anthony Wallace. We'll return to Ajo soon, but first I want to go to an imaginary place. Imagine you have a different life. You live in an apartment building with 17 rooms, pretty big. Most days you're focused on work. It can be physically taxing, but it's also mentally stimulating. You need to know a lot about physics and biology. But all week you're working, you're looking forward to the big game. When the day comes, you make the short trip downtown where the crowd is buzzing. The players take the court and you stand watching nervously as the ball flies around. Your favorite player scores and you cheer wildly. After the game, it's time to shop. Vendors from all over are there with interesting stuff from faraway places. You pick up a cup with silver sparkles, the distinct work of a special brand of artisans. Are you a landscape architect from Denver? A high school science teacher and track and field coach in Dallas? Maybe you're a park ranger in Brisbane, Australia. Actually, you're a farmer in the year 1000 in the Salt River Valley, where Phoenix, Arizona is located today. This is the bustling Hohokam culture, and... It looks very urban. 
Um, there's no there's no concrete roads or anything, but just kind of services and other things that they're doing looks very urban. Chris Castledine is an archaeologist from Arizona State University, and he met me at the Pueblo Grande Museum near Sky Harbor Airport. There are the remains of large multi-level mound structures and a ball court. This is a spot you would come for the big game and market. They're very in interconnected. They go to the same markets. They attend the same churches. They have a really tight network. And so that, that network is what makes them metropolitan to a certain extent. Chris said as many as 50,000 people lived in the valley at the height of the Hohokam. Just like it is today, this was then one of the biggest metropolises in the West. The appeal of the place was the same back then as it is now. Having a lot of land, a lot of sunshine, and water. Those are the three key ingredients of having a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. And the Hohokam were world leaders when it came to managing water. They're highly skilled hydraulic engineers in order to bring water 20 miles without pumps or anything that we have today. Chris and I are standing in an ancient canal as planes preparing to land fly over us. So this canal was probably 16 or so feet deep. So we're just barely on the surface of it. What was the edges of the canal, long mounds of raised earth, are still plainly visible today. Yeah, so those are the berms, and that's from scooping out the dirt out of the middle to make the canal. And that was done with digging sticks and baskets, looks like. How wide is that, about? 50 feet. So 50 feet wide and like 16 feet, 16 deep. feet deep. Collectively, there were 1,000 miles of canals in the area. So this is the largest irrigation system north of Peru in the New World, and one of the largest pre-industrial canal systems anywhere in the world. So this system channeled water from the Salt River to everyone's family farm where they grew squash and beans and corn, and it was a lot more sophisticated than long holes in the ground. You'll get something called tampions, which are wooden pillars that are used to slow down water, and you'll get head gates where brush and other materials put in there to stop water from flowing into fields or other canals. But once they the canals would get running, you'd get clays in there, and so the clays really seal up the bottom of the canal and stop water from leaking out the bottom mm -hmm. of it. Essentially, it works like concrete. So if, if you ever walk along canals here, they spray concrete on there, but the water gets behind it, and so it starts eroding away, so they have to continually spray concrete to keep that going, whereas the clay re replenishes itself. So in some ways, it was even better than what we have today. Yeah, yeah. Concrete doesn't breathe. Clay does. Hmm. All these ingenious design features came from generations and generations of experience. Centuries of tinkering and finding out what works best. We call it institutional knowledge. It's telling stories with your family and among the other farmers talking about it that when you do it for hundreds of years, you kind of have it down how, mm -hmm. how to farm. And that's the knowledge that even today, descendants along Gila River and Salt River have. Chris told me about a persistent myth, something my own education definitely suggested at times. The idea that America, before Columbus arrived, was a pristine natural expanse, a blank canvas to build a new world on top of. That is clearly wrong. The ancient Salt River Valley, for one example, was in a lot of ways as modern and advanced as any place on Earth. 
The current day city of Phoenix was founded in the 1860s and it did not sprout up out of nothing. Chris said if it weren't for the old Hohokam canals already being here, this place would not have grown as quickly as it did. Those early settlers cleared out the old canals and immediately put them back into use to farm themselves. And they knew they were indebted to the place's earlier inhabitants. As the story goes, a French-born pioneer named Daryl Dupa suggested naming the place Phoenix because it was born out of the ashes of a former civilization. And the canals we still use in Phoenix today are fundamentally based on the Hohokam's original ones. Phoenix is not a new place. It's an ancient city, as old as Cleopatra, Jesus, and the Roman Empire. And there's another big myth about the Hohokam. So they didn't disappear. So that, that's a misconception that's been going on for a long time. The, the analogy I, I give would be like saying, nobody lives like they did during the American Revolution today. So because of that, would you say America disappeared? The Hohokam culture and irrigation system thrived for more than a millennium. But roughly 500 years ago, things changed. The canal system, ball courts, and mound structures were largely abandoned. But the Hohokam did not just die away and poof into there. Their grandchildren are here. The Fauna Otham Nation, along with the Salt River Pima Maricopa and Gila River Indian communities are all tribes that reside in Arizona today and trace their roots to the Hohokam. So with my friend and fellow reporter Luke Simmons from the Tent Across organization, our collaborators on this water series, I drove south from downtown Phoenix, the old epicenter of the Hohokam culture. We're in Ajo, Arizona, about 30 or 40 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border hour and a half outside of Phoenix. It's pretty quiet. It's a old mining town. Ajo is a small town just a few miles from the Fauna Otham Reservation, which stretches all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border. We came to check out an organization using old knowledge to solve big modern day problems. So this is the Ajo Farmer's Market and Cafe. They have a little building just, just outside of the main square of town as you're headed towards, towards Mexico. Hello, hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. Yeah, thanks a lot for, uh, for meeting yeah. me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, just wondering how, how, how did you want to do this? How did you want to? We met Sterling Johnson inside the restaurant, and it's a small building with a few tables and a nice patio, but on this Tuesday morning, it was buzzing with activity. People busy assembling paper bags of food, cooking in the kitchen, and cleaning off freshly picked beans one by one. This is the work of the Ajo Center for Sustainable Agriculture, or Ajo CSA, a nonprofit Sterling started over a decade ago with his partner, Nina Sayaved. When COVID hit, Shelves at the few grocery stores in this rural area went empty. And so Sterling and the others at Ajo CSA started working overtime to get people food. It was really sad. Um, from March 2020 to December 2020, we gave over a million pounds of food out. A lot of the people they serve come in from the reservation. And like so many Indian reservations in Arizona and the rest of the U.S., the Thana Otham Reservation is a food desert. We have one store that's supposed to feed a nation that's the size of Connecticut. 
No, that's ridiculous. So people have to drive long distances to get fresh food. And that makes eating healthy tough, which is a big contributor to health disparities. Native Americans' life expectancy is seven years lower than white Americans. They are twice as likely as white Americans to have diabetes and 50% more likely to be obese or have heart disease. A lot of things that for us as you know, Native people, especially Autumn, where I'm from, not Autumn, where I'm from, are facing. You know, it's really hard. Two years out from the pandemic, people still come from near and far to pick up food every week from Ajo CSA. The food they distribute comes from food banks, grocery stores, as well as the fields they manage themselves. Sterling is a Thana Otham farmer himself. And Ajo CSA is one of many organizations in the U.S. and across the world that promote local food systems and sustainable and smaller scale agriculture with a focus on the kind of indigenous, time-tested knowledge that powered the Hohokam Canal system. A major part of Ajo CSA's mission is to revitalize traditional growing methods and foods and educate people about them. Us as Native people can no longer be in the background. No, we have to be in the front. But the mission isn't easy. A lot of people today think the Native people of Arizona disappeared. I don't want to be treated as someone that no, it's considered something of the past. No, I want to be looked at and viewed as someone that's no, still here. No. I have lived in Arizona my whole life, and I love food. But I've always struggled to understand what Arizona food really is. Street tacos, Sonoran hot dogs, those things are cool, but their history is short compared to the food they serve at Ajo Cafe. When it came time for lunch, I'll get the same thing as uh, Yeah. Luke and I got to try the house specialty, the peppery bean short rib stew. A bean-centric peppery stew with meat flavors from beef short ribs. The beans are a little bit like pinto beans. Peppery beans grow wild in parts of Arizona and Mexico. They can withstand droughts and 100 degree temperatures, and were a staple crop for indigenous people of the Southwest. They do not require heavy irrigation, like alfalfa and cotton, and they're very healthy, slightly sweet, high in protein, fiber, and minerals like iron and calcium. And as we were eating them, the restaurant's chef and kitchen manager came over to talk to us. How was it? That's really good. Delicious, sir. Cody Manuel grew up near Ajo before he went to culinary school in Scottsdale. Now he's back home, giving new life to old foods and educating people about the traditional crops. I do feel like right now there is definitely a resurgence of knowledge that people want to get. Finding out the, the real history of where this came from or how we got this, it makes a big difference and it really gets people sparked. It gets them excited about what they're doing. We had spoken with the class yesterday from Colorado, and they were so interested to hear about a lot of the foods, and they were so surprised. This is a common theme in the work that Ajo CSA does. They're doing things and showing people stuff they had no idea existed, or was even possible. Stuff that has in fact existed in this area for centuries. And it's more than just tepary beans. Cody gave me a tour of the cafe and some of the ingredients they use. 
And these ones are basically garbanzo beans. The natives also use them the same way they go through and they do like a traditional kind of hummus. And then we've also got gaifsa. It's a ground roasted and it's shucked uh, corn. And then this is wheat berries. Um, this is used a lot of the same way as they would granola. So you'll go through and you'll get a little bit of a crunch kind of texture with that. And then you have choya buds right here. So these are harvested locally out here on the Thon Autumn Reservation. And that's not all of it. At the cafe, you can order various stews, local chickpea hummus, Thana Autumn squash cake, and sweet potato salad. This was all a revelation for me personally. To find out this whole vibrant culinary tradition comes out of our desert, this is Arizona food. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to know that, you know, you've got something that was literally grown in your backyard, there's nothing like it. You know, you go through and you're trying something that has been in this area for longer than a lot of the families have been. And Ajo CSA isn't just giving food out. They're also giving out seeds so people can grow this stuff themselves. Last year, they said they distributed seeds to around a thousand people to create an alternative to our current dominant food system where there are a small number of big industrial farms. We're going to need more small scale farmers. And Ajo CSA is working hard to inspire and train people to farm. Sterling took us to the fields where they're doing just that. Our first stop was a neighborhood garden in Ajo. Sterling said when he and Nina started the organization, it was nothing but rocks and dirt. And we're starting from the beginning to re regenerate the soil to for it to be the way that it is now. Uh, and all of this was done naturally. You know, it wasn't done with any uh, lotions or potions. It was all mm. done with um, crop rotations, um, organic compost, Know, things that definitely benefit the the soil. You know, you can see it's all nice, dark and brown, and mm -hmm. you know the soil really uh, soaks up a lot of water. Mm -hmm. uh, and imagine if we can replicate that, yeah, on a larger scale. The kind of farming Sterling does is sometimes called regenerative agriculture. It's very concerned with soil health and. Research has shown that more vital soil with lots of beneficial fungi and other microbes can better retain water and produce more nutritious food. There's a ton that goes into creating healthy soil and that's what Sterling is trying to learn himself and teach others. Last year, Ajo CSA helped to get a bill passed in the Arizona legislature that provides $1 million over two years to support agricultural organizations teaching people how to farm. Very soothing. I mean, it seems like a lot of work, but when you get in that groove, it's yeah, it's very meditative. Get in the zone. Yes. Already, Sterling has a number of farming apprentices. One of them is Juke. This is where I met him, working on the garden. Uh, right now we got some beets behind you. We got some lettuce, uh, some peas, some chamomile. That kind of 
just did its own thing. <laughs> Juke is 29 years old, and he's been working with Sterling for over a year. But he's been farming for longer than that. When I got out of high school, I got a job doing this kind of work, and I fell in love with it. Why do you fall in love with it? Um, just to know that this was, you know, a big part of the autumn life, that, you know, us living out here in the desert, this was our main, or one of our main parts of survival. Mm-hmm. And growing up, never really seen too much of it. My grandpa would talk about it and talk about the stuff that they used to grow. So, you know, when I really got into it after high school, you know, it, it was good to mm-hmm. to actually see the traditional, like, styles of planting with, like, the, the rain harvesting and all that. And it was amazing. Just that feeling of providing good food for the community. There's too much that goes into traditional farming for me to learn in one day or explain in one podcast. And all the locations is different. People have to deal with different animals or mm-hmm. the weather or they don't get enough rain there. And it's a little different everywhere. Yeah, so that, that's been pretty fun. This, I noticed, is a major difference between the kind of farming that Sterling and his apprentices are doing and the conventional agriculture in Wilcox and Pinal County that we covered in our previous episodes. Conventional ag kind of imposes its will on the land. It isn't as flexible. They know exactly what they need to grow to make money. Cotton, alfalfa, and other hay to make cow food. And they're going to do that however they can. Whereas traditional farming changes with the environment. It's about working with the ever-changing landscape to do what works best for it. With the, the farming and the growing, I've learned that, you know, it's a gamble. And sometimes you just got to try and try again and, you know, hope for the best. This year, it's not the same as it was last year. We tried to do this because this happened last year, but now this happened. So we just got to adjust and yeah. work with it. And we just got to push forward because it's, it's our job. It's what we do is to grow this stuff. and. And this crazy pandemic right now that everybody's realizing the scarce in food and how important this is like mm-hmm. well what if we could just grow our own food and yep. i mean just take a shot at it try that's Bring all i tell out. everybody especially when we do the promotion and we're giving out seeds and stuff like that people that have never done it i'm just like you know it's i can only tell you so much but it's, it's just one of those things that you have to try To me, it seemed like Juke was trying to bring back something that's been lost. But to Sterling, it isn't quite that simple. Prior to bringing something back, it's not always going to be what it it used to be. (laughs) And for me, these guys are going to have to do something that nobody has done before. And that's a really hard thing to do. and another Sterling works on in town used drip irrigation from the local water system. But he took us to another one a few minutes outside of town that has none of that whatsoever. So, this is what agriculture would look like if Arizona just would stick to sustainability. It's in a valley surrounded by mountains. There's some bushes and trees scattered around, but mostly there's a lot of flat dirt. Not what you picture when you imagine farmland. 
And more or less, this land is rocks and sand. Nothing can break through the soil, mm-hmm. except for the traditional fruits like the beans, the corns, the watermelons, um, and which can survive. I've gone almost two months without having to water a field. Mm. This is one place Sterling does dry land farming, which relies only on the rain for water. It's all about capturing whatever water you get and growing things that can survive in dry conditions. Talking to Sterling and other farmers like him, I realized that this kind of farming is much more than a few simple rules or techniques. One thing that seems to me to be essential is a deep respect for and connection with nature and the soil. And that's not easily taught. What are the, the ways that you uh, make things grow in a field like this? Well, that's something I don't share. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, you want to learn these things. You want to, you want to understand them, but I can't give them to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't make them real for you. That's just something that you're going to have to do on your own. It's knowledge and a philosophy based on a long history with this environment. What is now the Thana Atham Reservation was the tribe's historic homeland. They were never forcibly displaced like many other Native American tribes. And Sterling sees what he's doing as a way to keep the history alive. The beginning farmer mentoring training, you know, it's you know, helped me teach history and preserve history. and everything that comes with it. I'm grateful that I'm actually able to do these things because, you know, when livelihood was erased, you know, my family members had to do what they can to, you know, live in this, in this modern society. And that meant dropping a lot of, a lot of things that made us who we are, you know. Now I'm rediscovering those things and I'm sharing those things. A lot of that history is ugly. In the 1800s, the U.S. federal government started boarding schools where they'd forcibly take kids away from the reservation and strip them of their native culture and teach them to be quote unquote American. In the last century, the government started flooding reservations, including the Thana Atham Reservation, with cheap, unhealthy commodity foods like canned soup and white bread. According to one Thana Atham food expert, 100 years ago, there were thousands of acres of traditional crops growing on the reservation, and there was no type 2 diabetes among the population whatsoever. Now, nearly all those traditional crop fields are gone, and 60% of adults over 35 have type 2 diabetes. We have bad history with the government. We can talk about it or we choose to ignore it, but um, it's a history that no, can't be erased mm-hmm. yeah. and there's things that have resembled those things in this time but what can we learn history contains lessons from things done wrong but also things done well and now the history that sterling is working to keep alive is looking more and more valuable as water in the desert becomes increasingly hard to come by and as more people become interested in healthy locally grown food we have to say something no, as a collective, as Native or Indigenous people, and you know, they always told us that they were protectors of the land, and I was like, yeah, I mean, we just knew how to take care of it. But yet again, we're needed again to figure out how we're going to take care of this, you know, thing we call climate. 
Sterling is understandably very wary about people using native culture and knowledge. The history is full of exploitation. Government and businesses have built destructive mines on native land. There's a fear that something similar could happen with native agriculture. Talking to Sterling at the dryland field, I got the sense that he feels conflicted. On one hand, he knows how important this cultural knowledge is, but on the other, he knows the danger of putting it out there, where it can be misunderstood or taken advantage of. We have the outsider makes all these assumptions mm-hmm. about who we are, and that's what hurts us the most is when you know, they have these ideas of what we should be, but that's their ideas, that's what they want. Now, Sterling said he's focused on training his apprentices and continuing to learn as much as he can about dryland farming. He's excited about a new technique he's coming up with that will blend dryland farming and drip irrigation, a hybrid approach. It's all about adaptation and working with the land. That's what the people did when the Hohokam canal system fell apart hundreds of years ago. They moved and learned how to thrive without a mighty river feeding their fields. And while Sterling is careful about spreading his knowledge, it's undeniably powerful and largely unknown. When I was with Jace Miller, the farmer from our first water episode, I asked him if he knew any dryland farmers because I'd heard a little bit about it. He told me that as far as he knew, nobody was doing that anywhere around here. That just does not happen in the dry Arizona desert. So from a certain perspective, Sterling and his apprentices are kind of doing the impossible. And that's an inspiring message. They made me think of a different vision of the future than the one our previous episodes have shown us. One where most of our food does not come from massive industrial farms that produce lots of meat, lots of corn, lots of hay, and use lots of water. One where we don't have to worry so much about the Colorado River drying up and leaving us with no way to provide power and essential water to millions of people in the West. One where there are lots of farms everywhere. They use rainwater and other sustainable traditional methods and grow a great variety of nutrient-dense crops, including those native to the area. Each one is a little different. Each one makes their place feel self-sufficient, food secure, and unique. Hey, how's it going? My name's Anthony. What's your name? Oh, my name's Elijah Mayed. Okay. And where are you from? I'm from Adichuk on the res. Elijah is another one of Sterling's apprentices. He's trying to bring back farming to his small hometown on the Thana Otham Reservation, just like Juke. And that means getting what seems to me to amount to a PhD in farming from Sterling. He's learning a lot. Um, figuring out like where, which which way the water is gonna flow into the fields, making um, berms and stuff to capture, to divert the water into the fields. You know. Yeah, it's a lot to know. I'm sure. Yeah, it's a lot to know. Like when people ask me about gardening, and I realize that I tell them too much, where kind of like <laughs> they don't know what to think or know yeah. what to say. So it stopped. Change happens one garden at a time. And Elijah is excited for the day that he'll start his in his hometown. When I go home and talk to people, they all seem interested. And there's even older people that um, reminisce about the old days when I was around. Mm-hmm. And they miss it, being there, uh, being around, uh, being in the fields and working. You have like a real like mission, you know, that yeah. you're trying to do. 
in your life, you know, bringing back something that your family did. Yeah, not just the family, but something that connects us to the people from, you know, our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot. Yeah. On the next episode of Inhospitable, a conversation that goes deeper into indigenous agriculture, how it can clash with modern science and academic institutions, how it's becoming increasingly embraced by the mainstream, and how it can change our country's food system for the better. There's the whole organic approaches to things, you know, there's the whole new regenerative agricultural movement that's been out there for the last 10 years. But we're always forgotten, you know. People don't realize that, you know, we're the ones who basically invented regenerative agriculture because we've been doing that in our holistic management practice since time immemorial, right? And so who do you want to buy from? Because the big movement right now is by the supply chain people to buy environmentally friendly sound products, right? That's a huge market. So why not, why not label something Indian? Thank you so much for listening. And to be sure you don't miss our future episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. This water series is a collaboration with the Ten Across Initiative. They focus on the future of the U.S. by looking at the most pressing issues in the southernmost states of the country. From California to Louisiana to Florida, those places are where water issues are most extreme. If this episode sparked your curiosity or inspired you to take action yourself, you can find more information on the organizations we profiled and the issues they face on our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. There, you can also find our other podcast series on the most pressing challenges our state faces, like homelessness, aging, and funding for the arts. One of the best ways to support our community-based solutions journalism is to tell your friends about it. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Special thanks to Nina Sayaved, Sterling Johnson, the Ajo Center for Sustainable Agriculture, the Pueblo Grande Museum, and Dr. Chris Castledine for their help with this episode. This series is in part supported by Intel, committed to creating a more responsible, inclusive, and sustainable future for Arizona. Intel.com slash Arizona. This podcast series is made possible by grants from the Nina Mason Polium Charitable Trust and the Arizona Community Foundation. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, scored, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. It was edited by KJZZ's Carrie Fair Snyder. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Mm-hmm.